What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. From caffeine to cannabis, morphine to mescaline, humans have long had a complicated and symbiotic relationship with plants. So in this week's episode, we were delighted to be joined again by Michael Pollan. He's the award-winning journalist and author who's written a new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. It's a fascinating conversation from how biology to culture is shaped by interacting with plants and their extracts. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Michael's new book in the podcast description. But now let's go to this week's episode with host Dr. Goody Singh. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event. I'm delighted to have with me today Michael Pollan. He is an award-winning author, activist, and journalist who has won acclaim for blending meticulous reporting with anthropology, philosophy, culture, health, and natural history. In 2010, Time magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. His international best-selling books include The Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food, and Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation, and most recently, a pair of books about the effects of drugs on the human brain, How to Change Your Mind, and now his latest, This is Your Mind on Plants. So let's begin. Michael Pollan, welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's such a treat to be able to speak to you. Thank you, Goody. Wonderful to be here. Look, can I say, just before we get started, that you have such a way with book titles. And I'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking in particular about The Omnivore's Dilemma and my personal favorite, The Botany of Desire, which is just so good. And those books that I've just mentioned, Michael, exemplify what I think you're perhaps best known for, which is your exploration of the sociocultural impacts of food. And so it may seem that your recent foray into the world of psychedelic medicines and plants is a bit of a sidestep. But there's a clear progression, isn't there, to your choice of book subjects. How have you come to write about topics as varied as cooking on the one hand and getting high on the other? <laughs> well, it's all stuff we ingest, right, that um, changes us in some ways. I mean, my uber subject as a writer has been the human engagement with other species, specifically plants. And I've been fascinated by that since the time I was a child. And if you're interested in our symbiotic relationship with plants, you're going to end up looking at food. That's our most powerful uh, engagement with the natural world. We change the world more through our eating than anything else we do. But there are these other desires that plants have evolved to gratify, and that includes changing human consciousness. And that's a very curious desire because it doesn't seem on its face that it would be beneficial. But of course, if it weren't, 
the drug takers would have been edited out by natural selection by now. And interestingly or not, they have, they very much have not. So I, I was very always curious to learn well, what good is changing consciousness. So this has been an interest going back to Botany of Desire. And thanks for your comment on book titles. That is my favorite. Um, book <laughs> titles are very difficult. It took me a month of doing nothing else to come up with that title, believe it or not. It's totally yeah. worth it. I love it. I think it's the best book title ever. Um, well, which- I'd had a, I, the, the previous book had a pretty lousy title and didn't do very well. And my editor said, don't put pen to paper or finger to keyboard until you have a great title. <laughs> and so I was forbidden from writing until I came up with a good title. So it was a very valuable exercise. This title may be a little obscure, though, to people in the UK, This Is Your Mind on Plants is a play on a famous anti-drug commercial on television, which is This Is Your Brain on Drugs, which showed a man cracking an egg into a hot frying pan and sizzling it and then holding it up. And that's your brain on plants. And this was such a ridiculous commercial that, you know, kids getting high would just wait for it to come on TV just so they could laugh. So it was one of the absurdities of the drug war. (laughs) Uh, Possibly backfiring there a little bit there. Um, I think so, yeah. (laughs) So let's turn to the book itself then. This is Your Mind on Plants. Now, what I think you do really well in this book is that you intertwine reportage, citizen science and historical scholarship into what is honestly a very delightful, very informative read. But thank you. <laughs> what's what's interesting to me is that you've chosen three particular plants to focus on. And you mentioned just now about the universal human di- desire to change or expand consciousness, which is what these three plants are all about. What I want to ask you is, why did you choose these three plants and why now? Well, these three plants represent three big categories of psychoactive substances. There's an upper or stimulant, caffeine. There's a downer or sedative opium, and there's a psychedelic, or what I think of as an outer, and that's mescaline. So these are the three big categories of of psychoactive drugs. They're also ones that I was frankly just curious about. Caffeine is a psychoactive drug that 90% of humanity has a daily engagement with, most of us not even thinking of it as a drug. So if you're going to examine what is a drug, which is a very hard question to answer, Let's look at something we all have a relationship to, the universal drug of the West, uh, and and actually the rest of the world too. So caffeine had to be there. Opium was there because it's really the oldest psychoactive in the pharmacopoeia. Uh, For most of history, as you know, medicine was involved with just relieving pain, and opium and various opiate derivatives were the the preferred way to do it. It really gets at the ambiguous nature of of drugs, that they can be both a blessing and a curse, depending on how they're used. And then then mescaline I was very interested in because I'm curious about the indigenous use of psychedelics. How do other cultures use them in a way that's safe and constructive? The image of psychedelics in, in in the West is that they're very disruptive and they lead to all sorts of social problems. And that's debatable, but that's the general view. And But what about a culture like Native Americans who've used a psychedelic in a productive way for a very long time? What can we learn from them? They were also ones I have a relationship to. Uh, you know, in the case of opium, uh, I had had a kind of misadventure growing opium poppies. And I have some behind me right here, opium poppy heads. 
in the in the late 90s i grew some and and ran into this government effort to suppress the growing of opium poppies even though it's perfectly legal but they can be turned into a narcotic and and as soon as you slit one of those heads with a razor blade you've violated the controlled substances act and and could have a you know eligible for a sentence of 5 to 20 years it's a kind of uh, enormous absurdity of the drug war. So I'm really interested in opium in particular, I guess, as my from my background as being a doctor. And so I wonder if I could just dig a little bit deeper here with this, because I was really interested to read about the relationship between the opiate crisis in the US at the moment and regulation. So we know that there's been this history of the war on drugs, as you've mentioned earlier. And I wanted you to just tell the audience a little bit more about what the war on drugs was really about. Because my yeah. sense is that drug regulation, as it was used during that that period, was not really for public health so much as maybe control of certain populations. Yes. So the, the drug war is presented to us as a public health initiative, right? Uh, protect people against the harms of drugs, which are real. However, we know now that when the drug war was launched by President Nixon exactly 50 years ago, he had another idea in mind. He had a political idea in mind. His domestic policy advisor, a man named John Ehrlichman, gave an interview in the 90s to a journalist named Dan Baum, who was writing a book on the drug war. And Ehrlichman said it was never about the drugs. What it was about is our two biggest enemies, Nixon's two biggest enemies, were African-Americans and hippies. And we knew that if we made drugs illegal and depicted them as evil, cannabis in the case of, of African-Americans and, uh, and hippies and psychedelics in the case of hippies, we could harass their populations, we could demonize their ideas and essentially control them. Uh, it's an, it was an astonishing revelation, and it really peeled back the curtain on what had been presented as this public health initiative. But the opioid crisis which begins in the late 90s with the introduction of Oxycontin by a company called Purdue Pharma, controlled by the Sackler family, turns out to have been the biggest public health crisis of this whole period. And it began with legal opiates, not illegal ones. So while the government in the 90s, at the height of the drug war, was going after gardeners like me, who were growing opium poppies in their garden and perhaps making a mild narcotic tea from it or laudanum where you just soak those heads in, in vodka, th they were looking in the wrong direction for a serious problem. Uh, at the same time, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, had approved this drug, which had been sold as safer than traditional opiates and less addictive, none of which was true. In fact, the, the, the company well knew that it wasn't true. And this led to a situation where by now 800,000 Americans have died since, since the late 90s due to uh, opioid abuse and, and, and uh, overdoses by and large. Now, many of the people who started on legal opiates then moved to illegal opiates with all the risks that come from street drugs uh, of contamination, of not knowing what you're getting and how strong it was. Um, but a very high percentage of them began with opiates prescribed by doctors. Purdue Pharma had also persuaded people in your profession that we were under medicating pain. 
and that it wasn't just something to give to cancer patients, but people with workplace injuries should get it, people with back trouble should get it. And they kind of uh, expanded the universe of people eligible for opiates. And it, it was true, we were under treating pain. And the fact is, most people can use opiates without getting into trouble. But as you know, as a doctor, it's, it's an ever-present risk for certain people. Totally. And what's shocking to me is that, you know, you have that quote from Ehrlichman about admitting that it's not about public health and, you know, that it's it's really about regulation of these populations. But also, I mean, I feel this complicity of the med- medical profession, right, in terms of falling in line with what the pharmaceutical industry were, were saying here. And it brings me on to my next question, which is related to regulation, which is when is a plant a plant and when is it a drug and why does it even matter? Well, that's a very good question. You know, yes, not only did doctors fall in line, by the way, many of them were essentially bribed to uh, prescribe opiates in great numbers. There were all sorts of incentive programs. And the government well knew that there were doctors prescribing more opiates than there were people to take them in certain regions. Um, So there was a looking the other way. You know, trying to make a definition of what is a drug and what is not a drug is difficult. Is a placebo a drug? Is chicken soup a drug, you know, when people give it to you and you feel better with your cold? I mean, there are many substances in food that change our minds. Food is, sugar is psychoactive, right? If you have children, you know very well that that is, that is the eight-year-old's drug of choice. <laughs> and um, so I, I don't think it's an easy distinction to make. I think that what's really striking is that so many plants have evolved the the, the particular neurochemistry to, to change what goes on in our mind and, and find the exact key to unlock neurotransmitters in your brain. I just find that inst- astonishing. And why are they doing it? Well, they start off doing it as a uh, defense chemical. Most of these alkaloids are defense chemicals and at high doses are lethal or poisonous to, uh, to insects and other uh, you know, pests. They're pests. They're enemies. I mean, the thing about plants is they can't run away, right? They can't move. So they have to use chemistry to draw animals to them to do work for them, like the honeybee. And then they have to use chemistry to repel. So this push-pull, they're really good at. And they have, they're the masters of neurochemistry, as you know, a great many drugs, uh, even, even modern drugs like Taxol, you know, important in the treatment of cancer, were invented not by, you know, people in lab coats, but by, you know, w- uh, trees in the forest. Yeah. No. I, I just find that just so exciting. Totally. And you're right. And we still are very dependent on being able to discover new medications by what's available out there in the in the natural world. And there's so much more out there than we have yet surveyed. I mean, there are hundreds of psychoactives in the Amazon, for example, and we have just begun to scratch the surface of what what's out there. Totally. And actually, that brings me on to an area that I'm very interested in, which is, you know, we have this knowledge about what some plants can do because of ancient practices in indigenous populations. But we also have this other problem at the moment, which is something called climate change. And the Amazon rainforest, for instance, is rapidly depleting. As a scientist who obviously wants to be able to find medicinal uh, products that can be of benefit to humanity, you know, my concern is that we're going to have destroyed the very habitats that could yield those cures in the future. But more than that, we also have a different problem, which is that the very indigenous populations that have this wisdom and knowledge themselves are endangered. And I wanted to ask you about that relationship between 
who owns this knowledge and who gets to benefit and how can we use these plants and these medicines without harming the very people who actually hold that knowledge in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's important to realize, especially in the case of psychedelics, which are now being, research is suggesting, have powerful therapeutic effects and can treat uh, various forms of mental illness. I think we're not that far away from the approval of psilocybin, which is comes from magic mushrooms, and uh, MDMA to treat trauma. But psychedelic medicine is based on a foundation of indigenous knowledge, as you suggest. So I think there are obligations on the part of the pharmaceutical companies, on the part of the researchers, to recognize that origin when it's relevant. I mean, it isn't relevant in the case of MDMA, for example, which is a laboratory chemical discovered in the 1920s, I believe. But certainly in the case of psilocybin, in the case of mescaline, where research will be underway soon, and that there has to be some reciprocity and there have to be efforts to support the communities who develop this knowledge and compensate them for it. And this is a struggle that I know there's several companies grappling with right now. I'm involved with a, a new uh, center at the Berkeley campus for the study of, of psychedelics and, and what they have to teach us about uh, the brain. And we are going through this process, dealing with consultants and members of indigenous communities to see how can we take some of the money we're raising and use it to help those communities endure. But you're right. Uh, we need to protect these habitats also, you know, where ayahuasca grows. And some of these things only grow in a very narrow peyote, which is a cactus that produces mescaline and is used by the Native American church, grows in a very narrow band along the Rio Grande. And there it is in very short supply. And that's why I ultimately decided not to experiment with it, that to respect this practice, which has been so valuable to the Native American community in healing their traumas, traumas inflicted on them by white people, that the, the way to show that respect is to leave peyote alone if you're non-Native. And there are other ways to get mescaline if you must have it. And so I think we need to be very attentive to this and that part of psychedelic research and 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 it, the development of these substances as medicines has to pay respect to their origins. Yeah, there's um there's something very poignant in your description of um how Native Americans use peyote ceremonies to heal their wounds of genocide, colonialism and alcoholism. But I think that mescaline is a very interesting jumping off point for thinking about some of these bigger issues. I've actually got here Doors to Perception, which is Aldous, oh, yeah. Aldous Huxley's book, which I think must be, in Western literature at least, the first report on the nature of trips and altered consciousness. But the use of mescaline, as you say, is much more ancient than that. From your own experience of it, what is it for and who actually uses it? So, yeah, Aldous Huxley's book, Doors of Perception, I recommend to anybody. It's really an essay. It's not that long. And it, it really launches the psychedelic uh, movement in the West. It's the first account of a first literary account of a trip. And it's beautifully written. And it points to what's unique about mescaline. And it's very different than other psychedelics. And I, w I had occasion to use synthetic mescaline, basically the same thing and same dose that Aldous Huxley had. And it was a, a fascinating experience. It's milder than other psychedelics. It doesn't take you to Alpha Centauri or, you know, to some new dimension. What it does is immerse you more deeply in the here and now than you have ever been immersed. 
you the sensory information that you 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 just had no idea how how much color was out there or how interesting the grain of a piece of wood is or the the, the ripples in in a body of water and you could study them for hours and it's as if as Huxley says your senses were open wider than they ever had before and you get in touch with the fact that normally we are receiving only a trickle of the information that's out there, which of course is how evolution designed us, right? Take in what you need to survive and do things we need to do, get get stuff done, but there's a whole lot more out there. And to have access to that was very powerful. It's different from other psychedelics too, in that it doesn't take you so far out there that you can talk and be and engage with other people. And that gave me insight into the Native American use of it, which is always in a group setting. They take peyote, they pass around a basket of peyote buttons, they're all sitting around a fire and everybody stares at the fire the whole time. And it gets everybody on the same wavelength. And I think that this is very powerful. When you have 40 people's attention trained on one thing, let's say uh, a patient uh, or an addict dealing with alcoholism or someone dealing with sexual abuse or trauma of some, some other kind, and, you, and everyone has been called together for the purpose of healing that person, it's very powerful. It's a little bit like an AA meeting where you have – uh, one person telling their story, and it's usually a story of hitting bottom and, and reinvention. But the attention of everybody and the support of everybody allows that new narrative, of, which is a rebirth narrative usually, to, to really get cemented. Um, so I think something like that is going on in the Native American church. And it, I spoke to many Native Americans, and they were very protective of it. And many would not tell me about what goes on in the TP where these ceremonies take place. But I was able to piece together enough uh, sense of what happens there without going myself to, to see that this was a very important tool of healing. And mescaline has been in use in what, you know, Mexico, Texas, which were one country at one point uh, for as much as 6,000 years. So we have a lot to learn from traditional populations about how to use these substances in a safe and productive way. And what we see is that they're never used or seldom used alone. It's usually in a group setting. There's always an elder involved, someone presiding, someone creating a container for the experience. They're always used for a reason. They're never used casually or for fun uh, or for thrills. There's an intention about it. And there's always a ritual container. And when drugs are used in a ritual way, that there's something very protective in that. I mean, think about people who, even people who use alcohol in a ritual way, observing our social rules. You know, you don't drink during the day. You, you drink with food. You drink with other people. You don't drink and drive. People who use drugs in a ritual way are not the people who get into trouble with them, by and large. Oh, this is fascinating, Michael. I want to go back to what you've just said about the nature of using these plants as medicine and in these ritualistic settings. You know, I, a Western doctor, I am a scientist. I have been schooled in hard facts and the preeminence of evidence but when I read your books, I have to say I am secretly or not so secretly excited about the ways in which plants challenge the medical establishment 
to actually straddle two worlds that we normally consider to be irreconcilable. So the scientific world on the one hand, but also the world of spirituality on the other. And I want to know from you and from what you've seen, what relevance do plants and the medicine you've seen have for a doctor like me working in the West and in the NHS? Well, you're right. I mean, what what I find also fascinating about psychedelic research and science right now is it is straddling these worlds of Western science and spirituality. And it's so odd to, I remember the first paper I read out of the Johns Hopkins group, which had to do with, you know, the title was something like psilocybin. This is published in a peer-reviewed journal. Psilocybin can occasion mystical type experiences in healthy, normal people or something like that. I was like, wow, you know, a scientific article on mystical experience. But of course, science studies humans and what they do and what happens to them. And mystical experience is a phenomenon in human brains. Um, So it's totally susceptible to science. Now, hard science, there's a kind of science that only, you know, studies what can be measured in a very empirical way. And if you're going to study mystical experience or spiritual experience, you're going to have to rely on people's reports of what happens. Phenomenology, as it's called, it becomes a very important part of the science. But there's no reason we can't do it. And and the scientists have, have scales of mystical experience. You know, I took a scale, I took a, a questionnaire to see if I had had a mystical experience. And they can tell me, with some certainty that I have. But I I think that we have to understand that science is a very powerful lens for understanding humans and the natural world, but it's not the only lens. And it benefits by using other lenses as well or recognizing their value. There is something called indigenous science. It is empirical. It's based on trial and error. It's not based on the double-blind trial, the controlled double-blind trial, but we should realize that's a fairly recent artifact. That doesn't really happen until the early 60s. And one of the things you alluded to this in the introduction that I'm interested in as a writer is multiplying perspectives. That I am, like everyone in the West, enchanted by the scientific perspective and the scientific method. And I think it's very powerful. And we have given it enormous authority in our culture and with good reason. But there are other perspectives uh, and that history has things to teach us. And that sometimes the poets get there before the, before the scientists. And that Aldous Huxley was turned on to mescaline by a scientist who wanted a literary account of what happened. And this was very useful to his scientific research. So I think that the humanities and the science, sciences need to talk to one another. I think it's a very productive dialogue. And in all my books, I've worked very hard to to not privilege one lens over another, but multiply them. And I think that's how you get the fullest picture of, of any phenomenon. Totally. And you know, one of the reasons I like reading your books, Michael, is exactly that, because you look at, you know, whatever your central subject is, and you look at them through all of these multiple perspectives. But what I really like about what you do is that you know, previously you've done it with food, now you're doing it with plants, but you're using it as a way to really look under the hood of the way that our world system works. And in relation to what you have experienced with opium and your experimentation with growing it yourself, and then also with caffeine, which we know the reason that we use it, of course, is so that we can all be productive. What do plants actually tell us about the world system and about capitalism? Well, by the way, I'm, you know, it's morning here in California. So just so you know, I'm drinking coffee. I'm in a different headspace. You know, (laughs) this is still the coffee hour. 
they teach us everything about it. I mean, you know, caffeine is a great example. Coffee and tea, which is such powerful parts of our lives, are built on the backs of a very brutal system of exploitation, particularly the farmers and the and the tea pickers. And, you know, the slave trade had a lot to do with coffee and uh, and sugar. And of course, tea and sugar, as you know, in England go together and always have. And that tea is essentially a medium for the consumption of sugar in many places. <laughs> and that it was it was tea from the East sweetened with sugar from the West, from the Indies, and produced by slaves that really drove the Industrial Revolution. And that it was, people actually wrote about this in England in the in the 1700s, that how odd it is that our everyday life now depends on these people uh, being exploited in these far-flung parts of the world. And, you know, India was not a tea-producing place until the English decided they needed a a tea-producing country they could control because they were spending so much silver buying tea from from China. And the, the balance of payments, the Chinese wanted nothing from England. And, and England wanted tea from China, so they decided, well, let's do it in India. And they and they basically created this tea industry in India and an opium industry, by the way. So these different plants that are, are tightly interlinked. They started growing opium in India, not to import to England because they understood the risks of it, but to export force on the Chinese against their will. And that's what supported tea in, in England, um, this, this very brutal system of exploitation and destruction to Chinese culture by forcing so much opium into a country that really didn't want it. Yeah. What well, Again, what's so amazing to me is, you know, I love food and um Food, I think, really helps to tell the story of humanity, you know, in terms of empire, in terms of colonialism, in terms of capitalism now. And plants are, I mean, food is plants, right? Lots of our food is plants. So these things are tightly linked. Or we eat animals that eat plants in turn. But it all, I mean, we all depend on this primary productivity. Uh, Without plants, we don't exist. Now, I could probably ask you questions all night, Michael, but... This is probably a good time for us to look at what the audience is wanting to ask you. So I'm going to try and feel some some questions from them. There's a lot of interest, obviously, in your book. And people are finding the issue around Native Americans really, really interesting here. In particular, this idea of peyote being used to help heal the wounds of colonialism. So one question that we have here from Stella is, to what extent do you see this healing being situated in a particular cultural context. So the, the the healing that peyote and mescaline can give, like what, where, how much of that is to do with the context as opposed to the drug itself? Yeah, it's, I think it's hard to separate those two things. But peyoteism, if we can call that, you know, the term for the use of peyote in this healing context, it begins in the Native American community in the 1880s, which was a moment of maximum crisis. Native American culture was on the verge of destruction, and that was the exact set of objectives of the U.S. government. We were forcibly removing children from Indian communities, cutting their hair in the case of boys, sending them to boarding school. Uh, You know, we're just learning about in Canada, they're finding mass graves in these boarding schools. The goal of doing this was, and this was articulated by the headmaster of one of these schools, to kill the Indian and save the man. So, and and 
Indian religious practices were actually illegal, many of them, in the U.S. until the 1970s. Okay, we wanted to destroy this culture. Indians responded with this new ritual around peyote. It was quiet. They pretended it kind of had a Christian ambiance. You know, there'd be a Bible around. It really had nothing to do with Christianity. But they knew that they would escape notice if they appeared to be having this Christian ceremony. And in that teepee, they were able to sustain their culture and preserve their culture. And it was vitally important in getting through that period of of maximum genocide and and dispossession. Because this is when Indians are being also forced onto reservations. People who were itinerant, you know, who moved with the bison and the seasons and were not agriculturalists were forced onto land, really shitty land in in Oklahoma. And this helped save them. And it has since spread. And there are 250,000 members of the Native American church. So would this work in another context? No, I don't think you can borrow uh, a set of rituals, a cultural container, you know, whole hog from one culture and transform it to another. But I think there are principles that we can borrow. And that's, you know, those were the ones I was talking about earlier, about the group use of a chemical, about uh, having an elder involved, about rituals. But we need to find our own rituals. And that's this very interesting process that's going on as psychedelics become an accepted medicine. When they are, it's not going to be a drug that you can get a prescription for. You know, you're not going to go to your, your local pharmacist and get psilocybin. It's, it's going to be administered by somebody, a facilitator or a therapist who prepares you very carefully for what's going to happen, who sits with you during the trip and then helps you make sense of what happened afterwards. So it's going to be a new model and it will be our container. It'll be, you know, medicalized, but we have to find the container that's appropriate to our culture. And I think that's going to be very interesting work that needs to be done over the next few years, because we're, we're, we haven't yet optimized that container. We don't exactly know, you know, should it be done in a group? Should it be done individually? Should it be, do you need a trained therapist or can just somebody, you know, with fewer skills do it successfully? All that is being researched right now. Yes. And it is like a very kind of flourishing boundary in research at the moment in terms of the set and setting of, of how we use yes. these, uh, these, these drugs. I, I want to ask this question about the evolutionary biology of our systems, of the human body and its relationship to, to plants and drugs. And, you know, you mentioned yourself, there's this amazing kind of synchronicity between the fact that these molecules fit perfectly to receptors that we have within our own body, which speaks to a kind of symbiosis between the plants and ourselves and this kind of joint evolution of different species. One of the uh, our audience, Daniel, wants to ask the question of why some plants are more successful from an evolutionary biology perspective than others. So opium and caffeine have been incredibly successful and they're so widely used across the, across the planet. As you said, 90% of us, and on the, in the, I think this fact is astounding, 90% yeah. of us use caffeine every single day. But things like mescaline are not used quite so wide, you know, in, in such a wide way. And I guess his question is, what's the difference and what is it that leads one plant to being widely used and, and another not? Well, you have a plant that's used rarely in a ceremonial context. So peyote is a very slow growing plant. 
So it's not some, it takes 15 years to get from seed to um, usable cactus. It's, a, it's like a little pin cushion. It's very slow growing. So it, it has a different biology and it has not probably been selected the way caffeine or plant, caffeine producing plants and opium producing plants have been selected and have evolved to produce more of their of their chemical. It's it's in a, it's still a wild plant, so it's in a different realm. What's interesting about these plants and these chemicals is that they're not lethal in small doses. And if you think about it from a plant's point of view, which I'm always trying to do, you don't want to necessarily kill your pest. Because if you do, you're going to select for resistant members of the pest population. This is how evolution works. And eventually, that pesticide will no longer work because you have evolved. And we see this with, you know, Roundup and, and all sorts of uh, human-made pesticides. They don't work if they're too lethal and, and use too much of them. But if you merely mess with the minds of your pests, if you distract them from what they're doing, if you ruin their appetite, that is a much better uh, strategy. I used to have a cat who loved catnip, had a real problem with catnip, and every night would follow me into the garden to have some catnip, which I had planted for him. His name was Frank. I noticed, though, every night he had to be reminded where the plant was in the garden <laughs> because the catnip had cleverly caused him to forget. <laughs> um, so it, it's these kind of, you know, really ingenious um, mental tricks that plants play on us that make them so effective. Caffeine is a very interesting example because it is a pest to many insects and it keeps other plants from growing too close to the to the coffee or tea plant. But it was recently discovered by a scientist working in England named Geraldine Wright that certain plants produce caffeine, this poison supposedly, in their nectar, which is where, of course, you want to attract insects. You want to attract honeybees. And, and this scientist, Geraldine, figured out doing this experiment that actually the bees were more attracted to caffeine-producing plants. And the ones that had access to caffeine had a better memory for where those plants were, were more likely to return to it, and they were more effective pollinators. So in effect, the caffeine is doing to the bees what it's doing to us, making us much better workers, much more efficient workers. That's astounding. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, you know, so... We should never underestimate the ingenuity of plants. They've been at this longer than we have, right? I mean, they've been evolving these these complicated neurochemistries for a very long time, and they've gotten really good at it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, isn't it, when you think about it? The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Just related to that that last... Uh, topic in terms of the difference between mescaline and, and these other other dr- uh, other plants is mescaline addictive at all no like most psychedelics they're not habit forming you know if you uh, do that classic setup with the rat in the cage and they have two levers and one administers a drug to their bloodstream and one sugar water and they'll you know if you put cocaine or or morphine in there they'll keep doing it till they're addicted or they're dead you do. You put a psychedelic in there, and they've done this with LSD. They'll try it once, and then never again. Animals don't like to trip, apparently. And one of the striking things about psychedelics is that they are not habit forming. Y- your first reaction after you've had a psychedelic experience, which is long and tiring and and kind of mentally exhausting, is is not to do it again anytime soon. They're also remarkably non toxic. Uh, the classic psychedelics, and that is an important fact. Not to say that there aren't risks. There are serious psychological risks with psychedelics, and there are people who should stay away from them. But they're much less toxic and much less habit-forming than many drugs that we use. So you have written widely um, about regulation of these drugs and these plants, and you clearly have your own views about how that's been done in the past. If you were going to be designing an ideal society going forward, what kind of relationship should we be having with plants and drugs? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot. I just wrote a piece about what happens after the drug war. Uh, you can find it on my website or on the New York Times website. It's called How Should We Do Drugs Now, I think is the title. And, you know, the drug war in the U.S. at least, I, I, I don't think this is quite happening in the U.K. yet, but in the U.S. is coming to an end. I mean, the voters are suing for peace. They, there are various ballot initiatives they've passed that have decriminalized all drugs in some places, psychedelics in other places. So we are at that moment of having to think about what does the peace look like after the drug war? And I don't have the answers. I think it's a very important cultural process to figure this out. I think that people who want to experiment with psychedelics should not be doing it in a casual way, should be following some of these principles we've been talking about of how they're used successfully in indigenous cultures. I think we're developing this medical container, but we also need to develop a container for people who are not mentally ill and still want and want to use these drugs for self-exploration or spiritual development. I think we're going to see some psychedelic churches popping up in America. I think it's happening already. And that someday soon, you may be able to go to, you know, the Church of Lysergic Acid. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it'll be called. And that given our Supreme Court and their deference to anybody who claims a religious right to be exempt from federal laws, they're going to they're going to have trouble saying no when these uh, psychedelic churches come to the come to the Supreme Court. In the case of the hard drugs, we know one thing: the drug war hasn't worked. We still have a problem with addiction. What is addiction? I think we're undergoing a kind of rethink about that. I mean, as you know, as a doctor, you know, it's curious that most people who use even hard drugs don't get addicted. So what causes addiction? Well, there's a lot of evidence that it's it's 
your circumstance. If you look at the geography of the opiate crisis, it's, it's, it's concentrated in areas where economic prospects are terrible, where people are out of work, where uh, the future looks really bleak, and that using an opiate or methamphetamine gives a kind of pleasure that isn't available anywhere else. And it's a, and it's a form of self-medication. So we have to ask ourselves, is addiction the, the disease or is it a symptom of the disease? And to what extent is the disease social and economic? And, you know, there's a very interesting experiment underway in Switzerland. Uh, the way they treat heroin addiction right now is they will, if you enter into this government-supported program, they will give you a prescription for heroin because it's much safer to use it if you know exactly what you're getting and you have a clean needle and, and it's not laced with fentanyl. And then after they've stabilized you, they, they make sure you have a good job. They make sure you have good housing. They make sure you have therapeutic support. And they understand that if you fix all that first, then you can deal with the addiction, that the addiction comes after. So I think that's an experiment well worth watching. I think we have a lot to learn and there's no glib answers. I mean, addiction will be with us, right? We have problems with legal alcohol. We have certainly have problems with legal nicotine. It's going to be an uneasy piece, but I think we can do a lot better than locking up millions, literally millions of, uh, of people in the United States for drug, nonviolent drug crimes, most of whom are people of color. Which brings me on to a question that someone called Rick has brought up and actually relates to my concern, which is exactly what you just said, which is that so much in healthcare is actually to do with the social context that we're in. And, you know, capitalism, big business is already hovering around these plants and the potential to make big money from these these drugs. What do you see being what we can put into place in order to regulate how those companies, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, pharmaceutical industry, whoever, what can we do to make sure that their desire to control patents and intellectual property doesn't come in the way of a, these medications being available to the people who need them, but also B, that they use in exactly the right kinds of context so that we yeah. don't have the situation where we, we create another drugs problem, another opiate crisis. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And honestly, I don't know all the answers. I, I'm concerned about the attempt to to control these substances, which have been used for thousands of years. And I, frankly, I don't think it will be successful you know, magic mushrooms are going to grow no matter who owns the patent on some crystalline form of it or, or a way of manufacturing. And that people can conduct psychedelic therapy with actual mushrooms and not just pills. However, I do support the effort to get these drugs through the, the, the regulatory process, prove their value in, in clinical trials so that they will be much more accessible because it's only through that system so far that we know that you can get it covered by insurance or by national health. And, the, and, and that's how you're going to reach a lot of people. There, the, the affluent will be able to seek their psychedelic therapy underground if they want and use actual mushrooms. So I, I think it's kind of a fool's errand that you'll be able to control these substances. They are, you know, natural goods and and you really can't stop them from being cultivated. But I do think that we have to guard against the, the, the commercialization of things like psilocybin. Psilocybin is very different than cannabis. You know, there are 18 states in America now that have legalized 
cannabis and you can go to a store and buy it. And here in the Bay Area where I live, there are billboards, you know, advertising cannabis and that if you call now while you're in your car, they'll deliver it to your home within two hours. And cannabis is being put in candy and it is being kind of pushed on people with the result that cannabis use is, is up in these places. I just think, and a lot of people think cannabis is the model for psilocybin and that psilocybin should be sold next to, you know, the THC gummy bears. I think that's a big mistake. I think these are much more consequential experiences. I think they needed, they need to be regulated more carefully and I don't think that we want to leave psychedelics to the mercies of capitalism, you know, outside of the medical context. And, you know, just following on from that, over and above legalization, which is one conversation, one of our audience is concerned about the fact that actually when you undergo a psychedelic experience, it can be incredibly profound, transformative, very deep, very mystical, but not always pleasant or not always easy no. to deal with. And as well as thinking about all the legalities of it and how we regulate it, is there a way that you can see us being able to to do this safely, to be able to engage in, 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 the, in the benefit of these plants without necessarily bringing harm to lots of people? Well, that's why I think the idea of the guide or the facilitator who creates the proper setting is so important. People do have very difficult experiences on psychedelics. Even trips you remember as being positive have very scary moments very often where you're feeling anxious or threatened in some ways. And um, But the same experience when you're with an experienced guide can be incredibly productive. And these therapists don't talk about bad trips. They talk about challenging trips. And, you know, it may dredge up some trauma from your past, but you need help processing that. And that's why the so far in research, there have been very few adverse events because there's someone there to help you, to tell you what to do if things get really frightening, which essentially is surrender to what's happening. If you feel your ego dissolving or, or, or you feel like you're dying, you, you, if, if you resist what's happening to your ego, which is being uh, challenged by the drug, you'll get really anxious. And you could have a panic attack. Whereas if you give yourself, if you surrender, if you relax your mind and float downstream, as John Lennon advised uh, many years ago, it will pass into a much happier place. So you need that guide on this journey. And without it is when you really risk uh, trouble. And so that's why I don't think people should use large doses of psychedelics in a casual way or without proper preparation or without someone who has more experience than you. But there are also people who simply should not go near these drugs. And, and one of the values of having this medical container is that you qualify people. You know, you take a medical history. Does this person have a relative who has schizophrenia, for example? Is there evidence of mania or, or some personality disorder. In general, those people are being excluded. And are you on an SSRI, an antidepressant? Um, not that that's dangerous, but it won't work very well because they occupy the same receptors. So, and, and then there are other psychedelics like Ibogaine, which is very powerful in the treatment of opiate addiction, but you really need to be on a heart monitor when you're on that drug. So using that in a casual way is, is really dangerous. So I think we have to treat these substances with respect and, and realize that 
there is a way to use them that can be very helpful to people with mental illness and even without, frankly, people who just feel trapped in, in destructive habits of thought and behavior stand to gain a lot from this. But getting the container right is, is vitally important. Well, I can tell from the questions that we've been getting that, you know, people who have been engaging in this conversation or reading your book are fascinated by this topic. And they're obviously curious to learn more. Um, just for the people who are watching tonight, there's a tab on the screen about the Psychedelic Society, um, which for, for, for anyone who's curious, and I don't know if you, there was anything you wanted to say about that in particular, Michael. No, I, I think that for people who want to learn more, well, I would send you to my website where I have a, a resources page with a great amount of information about uh, harm reduction information and and actually a listing of psychedelic societies in cities all over the world. So you can, if you're not in London, you can find one. MichaelPollan.com, just go to the resources page. Plenty of, of free information there for anybody who wants to follow, follow this up. And Michael, do you have any closing thoughts before I let you go this evening? <laughs> no, I, but I, I want to thank you, Goody, for the conversation, which has been incredibly uh, stimulating to me. You know, I think we, we are on the edge of a potential revolution in mental health care. Mental health care has not been very successful, frankly. I mean, compare it to any other branch of medicine. It has not prolonged life. It has not cured disease. It's treated symptoms and not that well. The tools that we have are really inadequate. Basically, SSRIs and antipsychotics that people hate taking that have terrible side effects. Um, and we're very close to having a better a set of better tools. And that's a very exciting moment. It's going to be treacherous in various ways. But I think that we'll look back in five or 10 years and realize that these plants may bail us out in, in ways that we'll be very grateful for. And just before you leave, because I'm curious, what are you working on next? <laughs> I haven't yet uh, launched on anything. I've been very busy with this book. And there will be another book. I can't stop. But exactly what it will be, I, I'm not really sure yet. As long as the book title is good, then I'm sure it will be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Michael, thank, you, thank you so much for, yeah, I'm thanking you on behalf of the audience, but thank you so much for being part of this conversation this evening. It's been absolutely fascinating from my perspective. And thank you for sharing your new book. This is Your Mind on Plants, which is out now for anyone who would like to buy. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. 